Good morning, good morning, good morning. I'm Michael Flake, one of our pastors here. Great to be together as a church family this morning, both at the Lake Norman YMCA and worshiping online. Always good to be together as a church family, whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there is room for you here. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. The round reminds us we're all active participants as we stay on this journey together. We're all here to receive something this morning. We also all have something to give as we soak in the grace and truth of God's love. We can also spread that love to one more person. Today, we continue in our year-long series of sermons called The Story with a capital S. For all of 2021, we're walking through the big picture of the Bible. From the beginning of time, God has been writing a great story in this world. He invites you and me to come and find our place in it. So through the first half of the Bible, we've been hearing about this coming hero, this wounded champion called the Messiah, called the Christ. And then in the second half of the Bible, we are introduced to Jesus as the one that we've been waiting for, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is fully God and fully human, that the God of all creation took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood, and he came here on a rescue mission for you and for me to reconcile us to God. Jesus came to establish God's kingdom and to do so in love. And so Jesus is inviting people into the kingdom, including you and me. He's inviting people into the kingdom with these words, come follow me and I will repurpose your life. Well, Jesus has started to tell his first disciples, his first followers, uh, that he's going to be killed and he's going to be raised on the third day. And then and only then can they start to tell the whole world about him. That we have to wait until he dies and is raised from the dead to truly understand what kind of Messiah he is and what kind of kingdom he has come to establish. And this is sort of where we are in the story with a capital S, in the big picture of the Bible. Last week we started looking at the final hours of Jesus' life. Ultimately, this gets us to the verses that Gail read for us earlier. Now, if this is the first time you have ever come to church, let me put a little uh, asterisk by this sermon. Please come back next week. If this is the only sermon you ever hear, you're going to think, that, that guy had a bad week. You know, that church is pretty, pretty uh, uh, has some problems. This is not the cheeriest sermon that's ever been preached in human history. But this is part one of a two-part series. Part two, now the original people did not know that. But this is part one of a two-part series, and part two is next week. So you want to hear the sermon next week as well to make a little more sense of this one. If you were here on Easter, does anyone remember Easter? We were outside, my head got sunburned. On Easter, I preached on this passage, John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God so loved the world. But the difficulty of our passage today is how human beings responded to that love. God so loved the world that he sent his son. We so hated God that we killed his son. There is something deep in the human heart, warped in the human heart, that does not know how to respond when confronted with God. 
when confronted with the grace and truth of God. The Scripture says that humanity is in rebellion against God. And that because we are in rebellion against God, we've brought death and decay to God's beautiful creation. Today, we will see the worst of that rebellion in the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, there will also be reasons for hope, but we will see the worst of the rebellion. And yet, we will also watch many of the Bible's big themes start to come together as God's strong and steady hand guides His story, His world forward. So to pick up with where we are, Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Most of Jesus' ministry did not happen in Jerusalem. It happened around what was called the Sea of Galilee, which is actually a lake. It would be like calling it the Sea of Norman. It's a lake. Most of Jesus' first disciples, in fact, all of his first disciples were Jewish people. That means they were the biological descendants of Abraham and Sarah from the very first chapters of the Bible. And they lived on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, which is really a lake. Jesus did a lot of his ministry on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. But every once in a while, he would also get in a boat and head over to the other side of the lake, which was populated primarily by Gentile people. It was thought of as the Gentile side of the lake. Gentile simply means non-Jewish, people who are not the biological descendants of Abraham and Sarah from the first chapters of the Bible. Jesus did a lot of ministry on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee as well. But now at this point, Jesus and his first disciples have left the area of the Galilee, and they are going to Jerusalem to join probably 100,000 other people to celebrate the Passover festival. Jesus knew this would have bad consequences for him because the Jewish leaders, religious leaders, and the occupying Roman government had been looking for a way to kill him before he became too popular. So during the Passover meal, Jesus did two important things. The first thing he did is that he washed his disciples' feet. I preached on that last week. Of all the sermons I've ever preached, it was the most recent. The, and that's all that can be said about it. The second thing Jesus did during the Passover festival is he started to say some very bold things. Some bold things that you will still hear Christians say even to this day during the celebration of communion. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 14. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank it. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. So Passover, you may or may not know what Passover is. Again, if you've been with us through the whole year, you don't have to have been with us through the whole year, but if you've been with us through the whole year, you go back and listen to these sermons uh, on the website. Uh, earlier in the year, in February, in fact, Katie McTurk, K-Mac, Katie McTurk preached on the Passover, that God instructed his people to kill a perfect lamb, a lamb of great value, to spread its blood on their door frames, and this would mark them as his. And being marked as his, they would be safe when a plague of death fell upon their Egyptian enslavers. 
And so for years later, the people began to celebrate this event, this Passover, annually. And it became very formalized. It became very symbolic. It became a very beautiful ordeal. And in the midst of that beautiful ordeal that Jesus is celebrating with his disciples, he takes some of the bread and he tears it. This is part of the Passover dinner ritual. He tears some bread, but when he tears it, he says something that's not part of the ritual. He says, this is my body broken for you. And then he poured wine into a cup. Again, this is part of the Passover dinner ritual, but then he says something that's not part of the dinner ritual. He says, this is my blood being poured out for you, being poured out for many. At this point, you would say that either Jesus has a Messiah complex or he is the Messiah. Because he is saying that this centuries-long celebration of the Passover is ultimately about him. That he is the Passover lamb to end all Passover lambs. After this happened, he and his disciples sing a hymn. They went out to the Mount of Olives, to a garden called Gethsemane. It was late. It was night. It was dark. And the darkness was starting to close in on Jesus. He was so overwhelmed by this that he asked his disciples to come with him, to pray with him, to pray for him. Jesus began pleading with his Father who is in heaven. And he begins to hear this sound. His disciples had fallen asleep. And the God who created the whole world now felt totally alone in that world. Heading into a dreadful showdown. In that great darkness, there came a light. It was the light of torches as one of Jesus' own disciples named Judas Iscariot brought some religious and civil leaders to arrest Jesus. The religious leaders had one question for him. It's found in Mark chapter 14, verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. This is really interesting because they've been waiting for the Messiah for generations. They've been waiting for the Christ for generations. But Jesus is accused of blasphemy for saying he is the Messiah. So they know God's promises, but they almost refuse to believe they could ever be fulfilled. Because it is no doubt a bold claim to say that you are the Messiah. But the truth of that claim is never discussed. Simply the mention of it is thought blasphemy. And so he is handed over to the Romans to be killed. Jesus winds up in the hands of a Roman leader, a man named Pontius Pilate, who hears these charges being brought against Jesus, and he's stunned. He's stunned by the way Jesus stands there quietly throughout the whole thing, like a sheep who's silent in the midst of its shearing. Jesus is not defending himself. Jesus is not arguing like his life depends on it. He stands silently with a quiet strength that intimidates even Pilate. And this is when Pilate realizes he has an out. 
Mark chapter 15, verse 6. It was the custom at the festival, the Passover festival, to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. So the Jewish people and their Roman occupiers had a very strained relationship, so much so that the Roman leaders would always try to find little ways to throw them uh, a bone. They did this with most of their conquered peoples. They always wanted to find little ways to keep, keep you happy. So Pilate's decided during the Passover, he's going to release a prisoner that the people love. This year, Pilate says, we have two choices. We have Jesus, who's done nothing wrong, and we have Barabbas, who is a murderer and an insurrectionist. Who should face justice? Who should walk free? If you know very much about the Bible, you might actually say this sounds a little bit familiar. That the capital A author knows what he's doing here. Who should face justice and who should walk free? Which of these two should go to the cross? Should it be Jesus, the king, or should it be someone who joined in a rebellion that led to death? Barabbas is guilty, according to the Scripture, of the same thing of which all people are guilty. We joined a rebellion against God that led to death, that led to the decay of creation. So Pilate presents the people with a choice. Who should go free and who should go to the cross to pay the price of justice? Should it be Jesus or should it be you? I mean Barabbas. The crowd sides with Barabbas. He should go free. As for Jesus, they shout, crucify him. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And there is something so warped in our rebellious hearts that we shout, crucify him. Jesus was beaten. The soldiers fashioned a crown out of thorns and put it on his head. Thorns are a symbol of creation's rebellion against God from Genesis chapter 3. A beam is tied to his arms. It's a beam so heavy, in fact, that the soldiers make some random guy named Simon the Cyrene help him carry the beam up a hill. His, nails, or his hands were then nailed into that beam. His feet would be nailed into a vertical beam. The beams would be connected, and he'd be raised up, and he was left to die. Verse 25, it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. It was common to nail the official crime of a person being crucified to the top of their cross. For Jesus, it was just more mocking. His crime is being the king of the Jews. The king of those who, uh, the king who came out of the line of Abraham and Sarah. The Romans meant it in jest, but as a Christian, I don't see it that way. I see it as the coronation of the king, foretold throughout the first half of the Bible, foretold throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is being coronated as the king of God's eternal kingdom. The title above his head and the crown say it all. With a quiet strength, Jesus is willingly submitted to becoming the king of this kingdom. 
But what sort of kingdom is God's kingdom if this is how the eternal king is coronated? Well, it's a kingdom of rebels who are being brought to justice. Our actions are being called out. They're being called wrong, but ultimately they're being forgiven. It's a kingdom of the humble. It's a kingdom for the suffering who are no longer defined by our failures, but by God's grace. It's a kingdom where God's or Jesus' relentless strength triumphs, where his, where his steadfast mercy triumphs. As the king is being coronated, the people are still ignorant of what's happening, and so they insult Jesus as they pass by. His quiet strength continues, but each breath gets harder, harder to pull up, harder to breathe. He starts to feel more and more alone in the world. Verse 33, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So now even creation is starting to writhe. Creation cannot figure out what to do. God coming to earth is hard enough to get your head around. But what happens when that God offers himself as the final Passover lamb? What happens when that God, Jesus the Christ, willingly hands himself over to death, when he allows the ancient serpent to not simply bite him, but to swallow him whole? The earth starts to shake. The sky grows dark. In fact, there is a pagan historian named Thallus, T-H-A-L-L-U-S. Thallus, this is not on the final. You don't have to panic about this. Thallus, T-H-A-L-L-U-S. L-L-U-S. He wrote around 50 A.D. that it was well known that darkness overtook the land during the crucifixion of Jesus. Dallas said it was as if there was an eclipse of the sun. Creation starts freaking out. That this is no ordinary day. This is no ordinary crucifixion. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, leme sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the first line of Psalm 22, which was worth the read. But it's also hard to hear Jesus say that. As he faces the justice that we rebels should have faced, as he willingly hands himself over to the death that we brought into the world, the eternal king is so overcome by the warpedness of creation, so overcome by our rebellion against God, that he feels totally forsaken. As if even God had to turn his face away as everything wrong with the world took Jesus under. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he had died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. So I told you there'd be a couple reasons for hope. Mark tells us that two things happened at the death of Jesus that forever changed the world, may forever change your life. The first is that the temple curtain tore from the top down. 
Now, at that time, it was very common for people to tear their clothes as an act of mourning. You could view this as God's act of mourning. But of all the things he could have torn, he ripped the temple curtain. Because the temple curtain was a a symbol of the barrier between God and humanity. That there is a gulf between the holy God set apart in his purity and all of us. Us rebels who have brought death and decay into God's good creation. But he ripped the temple curtain because in Jesus that gulf is bridged. That barrier is broken. And not because God quit being holy, but because Jesus made a way for all of us to be reconciled to him. Because Jesus' death called out and called wrong everything that's bad in us, but he did it so that it could be forgiven. So that reconciliation with God can be real. The Bible uses the word reconciliation to describe our our, uh, fixed relationship with God. It's interesting that it picks the word reconciliation because reconciliation is not about just two people being buddies. Reconciliation also implies there's a reason the relationship has to be reconciled. Something is wrong. And unless that thing that was wrong gets called out and gets called wrong and gets forgiven, you cannot have reconciliation. You have two people dancing around an elephant no one will talk about. For reconciliation to be real, what is wrong must be called out, called wrong, but it must be forgiven. And so part of the point of the temple curtain, at least part of the point of the temple curtain being torn, is to say that in Jesus' name, reconciliation to God is real. Because anything in you and anything in me that separates us from God has been called out and called wrong, but has been forgiven. That Jesus is the wounded champion. Jesus is God's fulfillment of the promise to be on the hook for our failures. That's Genesis chapter 15. That Jesus is the final Passover lamb. That Jesus is the perfect sacrifice to make amends for everything that separates us from God. That Jesus is the eternal king from David's line, but he was coronated as a suffering servant, silent before his shearers, crushed for our rebellion. Those are some of the most famous descriptions of the Messiah in the Old Testament. They got passed down by Jewish families from generation to generation. And yet, at the crucifixion of Jesus, it is a Roman centurion, a Gentile, who knows nothing about the Old Testament who might even in his quiet moments have looked down on people who thought the Old Testament was meaningful, who knows nothing about the Old Testament, who says of Jesus, surely this man was the Son of God. It's the Roman centurion, the Gentile, who declares that Jesus must have been God. That's the second life-changing thing Mark wants you to know. Now we start to wonder if Jesus trips between the two sides of the lake, the two sides of the Sea of Galilee, the more Gentile side and the more Jewish side, were those not just a passing idea he had? Maybe that meant more than we first knew. 
Is Jesus doing something, yes, among the biological descendants of Abraham and Sarah, the Jewish people, but is he also doing something bigger than that? Has he come to invite everyone into God's family? Has he come to invite everyone to be reconciled to God? Because there is that promise very early in the Bible that God promises to bless every family through Abraham's family, to bless all peoples through the Jewish people. Are we starting to see that promise find its fulfillment in this person named Jesus? Because of this now king named Jesus, of whom the centurion said, the centurion said, Surely this must be the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. These women stayed till the bitter end. Even after the Jesus game was over and all the other fans had gone home. They didn't have much to say. Not yet. But they watched as Jesus' body was taken off the cross They watched a wealthy man and a religious leader go and get the body and place it in a tomb. It was getting dark. It was almost the Sabbath day of rest. And so the women went back to where they were staying, planning to return in a couple days. They had to wait a day because of the Sabbath day of rest, but they'd return the following day. And they would properly prepare Jesus' body for burial. And after they had honored this man named Jesus and cared for him till the end, they cared for his needs up to the end, then they would have to figure out what to do. Because their hope, their Jesus, was dead. So the tomb was sealed up. Night fell on Jerusalem. Jesus' disciples had scattered. The centurion was rocked by what he had seen. In my moments, I hope Barabbas had seen some of it to at least reflect on the question or leave the thought, that should have been me. The religious leaders snuggled up into their beds. The Roman leaders snuggled up into their beds. And as they fell asleep, the thought crossed their mind. Whew. Give it a few days. And this whole Jesus thing will have blown over. So I don't really have a question to close my sermon today. I usually close with a question for your reflection. 
I just didn't, I couldn't find a question. I really didn't feel up for it. I, the, the Jesus game is over. All the fans have gone home. So I'll just reflect with you briefly on, on something that I think is worth pointing out, and then we'll pray. And I will pray you make it back for part two. If Jesus is the final Passover lamb, which is what he was claiming to be with the words he said during Passover, if Jesus is the final Passover lamb, it's really, really, really important that the lamb was offered by both Jewish and Gentile people. The Jewish religious leaders and the Roman government worked together to kill Jesus. In other words, all of humanity offered Jesus as their final Passover lamb. Which gives the choice to us, whatever our heritage, we are forced to the question that Pilate asked, which is, what shall I do with Jesus? Will you and I mark ourselves with Jesus' broken body? Will we mark ourselves with Jesus' shed blood? Will we mark ourselves as His, as people reconciled to God, not through our own efforts, but because of what Jesus has done for us in His life and His death? I invite you this morning to consider what the death of Jesus tells you about Him. What the death of Jesus tells you about the God of all creation. What, he, what it tells you about what God is doing in the world. But I invite you even more than that to follow in the footsteps of the centurion, to declare that Jesus is not just a good teacher, not just an interesting guy, but that he is in fact God. That he's not just the king of some people who lived long ago. He is the king of me too. He's not just somebody's Passover lamb, not just all of humanity's Passover lamb but is my Passover lamb. The one through whom I am truly marked as belonging to God. That marks me in a way I cannot mark myself. As Pilate asked, what shall I do with Jesus? Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, a chance to talk to God, to listen to God. About whatever he's stirring up in your heart or your mind. Just take a quiet moment for personal prayer. Lord, I thank you that even in the hardest, toughest, most tragic moments, there is reason for hope. I thank you 
that we are told these wonderful things that the temple curtain tore from the top down and all of what that means that the guilt and the shame that weighs some of us down has been nailed to the cross that we might be reconciled with you, not because you quit being holy, not because we shaped up, but because of the sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf. Lord, I thank you for what the centurion said, a promise or or the, the, the reminder, the reassurance that you have come to bless the people of every family, every people group, that you are bringing together the most diverse movement of human history through this crucified Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that we will sit again with that question, or for the very first time with that question of Pilate, what shall I do with Jesus? And, Lord, I pray we would not keep you at arm's length, but that we would find in you life, true life, life reconciled to God, life that does not desire to rebel against you, but desires to walk in step with you, even if it's going to take a long time to sort out all the messes we've made. So we pray all this in the matchless name of the crucified Jesus. Amen. Amen.